I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. So excited! I feel like this conversation for myself. You guys don't know this, but this has been like this has been one of those one of those setups where um, I come across a guest like Christina that I get really excited to chat with. And then Christina, you, you, you I mean, you just live such an interesting life, and your schedule is. Uh, I think your schedule is far ca- more chaotic than than ours, and I think we have a pretty chaotic schedule. Um, Finally, finally, we found the time to like <laughs> sit down and make this happen. It's been months and months and months in the planning. Um, Christina, you are, you're, I mean, you're so many things. You're a speaker, you're a writer, you're a performer. Um, but but let, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, give us a little bit of insight into who you are. Hi, everyone. I'm Christina Helena. Uh, a woman who just loves anything related to the soul. My number one priority in life is the evolution of my soul, your soul. And I just feel like if it doesn't include the word soul, if we're not searching the soul, writing about the soul, talking about the evolution of one soul and what that means and what that is in our healing of as human beings, then it's going to be really hard to keep my attention. <laughs> <laughs> right up our fucking alley. I'll tell you that right now. I'm looking at Taylor right now and he's looking like he's doing some deep soul searching <laughs> to, to find any little ounce of life within himself <laughs> to be present here today. Taylor, you feeling a little bit tired? No, I'm, no, I've got a, I'm in a, uh, I'm in an up, I'm in an up hour right now. There you go. Yeah, I yeah, fluctuate. Sweet. I fluctuate. I fluctuate hour to hour. And this one I'm on this, I'm on the upswing. Um, Christina, I know that you've had a, you've lived quite an interesting life and uh, I would like to take it kind of like kind of back to square one in terms of in relation to the podcast, Sick Boy, um, yeah. you, uh, you are, you're, you've, you've gone through the whole like cancer journey. Do you, how do you feel about the, the term cancer survivor? I don't know. I don't really, it's so weird. I don't even feel like I identify with that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I feel about the word cancer survivor. The word survivor is very interesting to me because when you go through anything like what we've been through, Jeremy, like medical, anything that threatens your life, it doesn't even have to be medical. If you've been through something that threatens your life, that leaves you with ongoing, what I like to call maintenance, medical maintenance, a lot of like checking in a lot of treatments, all of a sudden you wake one day and you, you wake up and you just feel horrible Mm. and it just kind of, derails your entire calendar it doesn't the word survivor feels like well that's a peculiar word because it's still happening i still have to wake up every day and deal with the effects of 
what I went through, deal with the effects of the removal of the organs. I have to deal with the pain some days. Some days I just feel completely horrible. And some days I feel so fabulous that I completely forget what I went through. Mm. So the word survivor is interesting because it doesn't end. And the Mm. word survivor for me has this thing like, I did it, it's over with, it's in the past. Yes, sure. A big part of it is in the past. The worst of it, knock on wood, whatever you want, but all the good vibes out there is in the past. But is it in the past? Yeah. Psychologically, emotionally, physically, day-to-day maintenance. Is it really in the past? No. Yeah. This is the whole the whole like notion of like um cancer metaphors is something that's kind of come up on the show um as of late. We did a whole episode. We did a whole episode on it. And then it just kind of like continuously has sort of come up every time we talk about cancer. But yeah. Um, uh, how, how do you, how do you, how do you frame, how did you, how did you, or how do you frame, frame your experience with cancer? Because I, I was thinking the same thing there guys on the episode we did, um, with the linguist on the way that we frame cancer with language in terms of like the most common things mm-hmm. being a journey or a battle, um, mm-hmm. being very common. And, but then, but then also the idea that there are many people that, that think of and frame their experience in, in ways that we don't really use language. We don't, you don't really see very much language being used in the way that a lot of people might frame it. So what was, what was your, how did you frame it? Did you see it as a battle? Did you see it as a journey or was it something completely different that you don't hear very often? Oh, this is good, Taylor. So the second I found out that I had six months to live, literally milliseconds later, I had this download. I saw exactly why I had six months to live. I saw exactly why I was sick. I saw exactly the reasons that this illness manifested in my body. And it was literally like an out-of-body experience. And it was the second out-of-body experience up until that point. And it was so clear to me why the evolution of my, I was gonna say humanity or like the human in connection with the soul in the body was going through what it was going through. It was so clear to me what was being avoided that was being manifested into illness for me that it really did feel like this journey. And I never did for one second feel like I'm gonna die from this. Mm. I knew that I would survive it, but I didn't know like what would happen after that. It's not like I feel the same way now. It's not like I'm untouchable and death can't get to me. Of course it can, I'm human. But in that moment, I knew that I wasn't gonna die from this illness that I had. I wasn't gonna die from pancreatic cancer. I wasn't gonna die from these pancreatic tumors that had spread all over my body that now required this insane surgery that I had to go through. Mm. So it felt very much like, this is the evolution of who you are and who you're going to become. And you're going to find out later, but right now you need to focus on getting through this physical stage to then deal with the emotional psycho spiritual stage. Mm. I don't know why guys, it was so clear to me at Mm. 17 years old, like that was what was happening. It's like, I left my body. I got all the downloads and then I came back and I just went through the movements. Mm. I, I'd love to like kind of uh, put things to context here for listeners, um, because I know that. So you know, one of the things you said was when you received uh, the the diagnosis and, and heard you had six months to live. Um, that was that was uh, kind of a while ago, right? Um, yeah. You were you were a teenager. So so how old are yeah. you now? And 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 maybe take us back to when all that happened. Like chronologically, what was the process of your your experience with pancreatic cancer 
Yeah, 17 years old, hanging out in college in my dorm room on the phone with my boyfriend in college at the time, just like doing homework two in the morning. And I get this really sharp pain in my chest. I fall to the ground. The phone falls completely out of my hand. But at that point, I don't even realize that the phone has left my hand. And I have this pain. I go from like these, like this montage of like pain in my chest, falling on the ground. Then all of a sudden, I see myself on the ground and I realize that I am no longer in my body. And I'm like hovering over my body like this. And then I just start going up, up into this light. And I start to hear this voice that is familiar to me. And the voice is my grandfather. Well, my grandfather, yeah, who has passed away. My grandfather just very calmly, like as I'm rising and it keeps getting more and more calm and more and more serene and more and more beautiful. And I show up to this place and I see my grandpa and I'm looking at him like, it's all normal. I'm looking around. I'm like, yeah, this place is rock star. You guys have it good up here. What's going on? <laughs> like, it's just like, everything's good. Like nothing is scary about this experience. Nothing. Mm. I see my grandpa. He's just staring at me and I'm like, Hi. He's like, hi, what do you want to do? And I'm just like, I don't know. He's like, well, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And I knew what he meant. He's like, do you want to stay here? Or do you want to go back to where you were? And I said, well, it's really nice up here, but I think mom and dad are going to be really upset if I don't go back. So I'm going to go back. And he's like, okay. <laughs> and then he says, remember, Christina, nobody's going to believe you. You. And all of a sudden, like the words you become like this big and they're like flashing. You, 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 you have to do something about it. And then boom, like I was back in my body, back on the floor, back curled over in my dorm room. And all of a sudden I hear this phone and like my boyfriend's voice is like echoing off this phone. He's like, Kree, Kree, baby, baby. And I'm like, what's going on? Like I make up the phone. I'm like, what's wrong? He's like, what are you doing? Like, I've been yelling your name for like what feels like minutes and you're not answering. And I don't think I really understood that quickly what had just happened to me, but I was still in a state where I just thought, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm fine. But I got to go. And I hang up the phone with him and I immediately, I immediately book a flight to go to Detroit. At the time I was living in New York City in college in my senior year of college. and. I book a flight to Detroit. I go to the first doctor. I just knew that whatever I just experienced was illness. And I knew that I was dying because I kept saying to the doctors, oh, I'm dying. You need to figure out what's wrong with me. First doctor said, no, you're fine. Your heart's fine. Second doctor, no, your stomach's fine. Third doctor, oh, your lungs are fine. And everyone's checking me and everyone's saying I'm fine. The fourth doctor, you're fine. Finally, I start to panic because I'm convinced that I'm sick. Mm. I'm convinced that I'm sick. Now, this is this is delicate territory because, <laughs> you know, it can be what they very soon told me. I went back to my first doctor and I said, you know, I'm I'm really telling you, I'm 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 seriously sick. Something is happening. I'm and I'm dying. And he turns around and says, "You're not dying. You're just psychosomatic." Mm. And the second he said psychosomatic, I just heard the first part, psycho. 
And I don't think I understood at 17 what the word psychosomatic actually meant. You know, I had just moved to America as a teenager. So English is my second language. And I'm still trying to put together some American words, even now, that I just don't quite understand. And I was like, psychosomatic? I interpreted that as, oh, you think I'm crazy. Mm. Okay. That panicked me. And I did something very daring where I pretty much refused to leave his office unless he ordered a CAT scan, which then gets into a delicate conversation because his answer was, well, your insurance doesn't cover a CAT scan. You don't have enough symptoms, which to this day, you know, we, I could go crazy on like these kind of statements from doctors, how many people need just one simple test, but because of insurance companies, mm. because of these protocols, we can't get people the right access to just make sure that they're okay. But I kept fighting, I kept fighting. And the second he said psychosomatic, boom, I remembered my grandfather. And I remember what he said. And he said, nobody's going to believe you. You have to do something about it. And it was that memory that I had of my grandfather, where he said, you, 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 that allowed me to have this conviction and this courage as a teenager to say, I'm not leaving your office unless you give me a CAT scan. Go for it. Call security, call the police. You will have to drag me out of here. I wasn't even, and like, I just knew at that point, this is it, Christina, this is it. All the chips on the table. This is your last chance. If you don't get something now, you're not going to get anything because I was at the fifth doctor. And here's the thing that I learned about this. A lot of us say, oh, get a second opinion. And we do. Who goes for a third? Mm. Who goes for a fourth? Who goes for a fifth opinion? Most people don't. Around the second opinion, third, we start to feel, okay, one doctor said I'm okay, two doctors said I'm okay, three doctors said I'm okay, okay, I'm okay. We, we, there's something about the number of three that we think this is valid. And thank God it wasn't valid for me. And I kept pushing and pushing and pushing because I did get my CAT scan. And 30 minutes after I got my CAT scan, I walk into my house, my parents look like they're white as a ghost in the face. I look at them and I think, oh, okay, somebody in the family died. I come from a Greek family and it can be pretty uh, dramatic when there's a death in a Greek family. And my first question was, who died? And they said, nobody died. Okay, then what? What's wrong? And I'm like, Christina, come inside the house. I'm like, no, what? Just tell me. And, you know, I'm a 17-year-old hormonal teenager, like just, you know, a normal teenage girl. And I'm like, tell me what happened. What's wrong? And my mom walks over to me to say, the doctor just called. You have six months to live and you have pancreatic cancer. Ooh. And I'm like, first of all, I don't even know what a pancreas is <laughs> at the time. Mm. And I hear six months to live. And that is when I walk out of my garage, out of my kitchen, through my garage. I'm standing on my driveway. And I'm having this second out-of-body experience, the download where I see why I got it, why I'm sick, how I'm responsible, what I've been ignoring, how our psycho-spiritual reality affects our bodies. Mm. Now, not everyone believes in that, and I respect that. I do. I don't think all illness and disease manifests that way, no, but I do think some of it does. And that experience that I had was so vivid and alive and profound for me that it's in alignment for me. Is it the whole story? No, who knows? I can never know. But 
I have hunches. Yeah. Like, was there, I mean, we, we, we've heard this on the show so many times of like guests who are in a similar position as you, where they, they like, they feel so deep down within their core, they feel that there's something awry. Something is not right. Mm -hmm. Yet they are continuously told, well, no, like they're, everything looks fine. Everything, mm-hmm. everything where all those, all the, all the, the numbers we're getting back are, are normal and, and there's nothing out of place here, but there's this, like this gut kind of feeling that, that feeling for you, was it, was it, was it more physical than it was sort of ethereal, you know, or, or, mm. or, or what, like, because this experience that you're, you're, you're telling us about, you know, this outer body experience, uh, meeting your grandfather in some other place, like, I, I have a feeling that I know that, that if that happened to me, that would stick with me for years and years and years, like that would change me. Um, but like how physical was this, was this feeling that something wasn't right? I don't know. I don't know that it is physical. I don't know that it's ethereal. I don't know that it's just mental. I don't know that it's just emotional. It just is. Yeah. I don't know that I have the words to explain it. I mm-hmm. think there are some things that we just know. How do you translate a knowing? Mm. Mm. We have language. I think in linguistics and language, we use, oh, my gut feeling. Yes. Yeah. My intuition, my instincts, something told me, something was talking to me, but how do we know where that's coming from? And I think, I think a lot of people, we use that language because it makes sense. It makes sense. You and I can communicate right now and we can somehow understand what I'm trying to say versus what you're interpreting that I'm trying to say. And you understand because there's this common, common identity of what we use for that feeling, Mm. but that knowing for me is the divine aspect of every single human. I think we're all connected to our divinity. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it really like, it really, <laughs> this is fucking classic me, uh, but it really reminds me of like a psychedelic experience where you can, you have that experience and then somebody asks you like, well, what was that like? You know, what was that like when you broke through to this other place and you try to explain it and words, you, you, words can only really do so much but really to like actually tangibly communicate what that experience is like is, is uh, it's fucking impossible. It's impossible. It's It's only experience. You really had to be there. It's, it's that kind of vibe, right? Like where you're just like, Hey, you kind of, you kind of had to be there. And so like, how does, how, how that plays out in, in like patient advocacy, you know, advocating for yourself as, as a patient, like that's such a, it's such a tricky thing to do, you know, because again, you know, you look at the doctors and they're human, they're, 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 they're trained to do what they do, but they're, they can only do so much. And when you have someone coming into the office, that's like, look, I'm fucking telling you, I know, I know. And I cannot communicate to you how I know this, but I know something is not the way that it should be, you know, I think there's those, those docs out there that hear that and they go, okay, all right. 
I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with you on this. And then there's the others that just can't see. They're just like, nah, I, I can't. I like, I can't. I wasn't there. I don't get it. Like, I don't. I, I can't comprehend what it is that you're trying to like put forward here. But obviously, you were you were fucking onto something. Like, you had. I mean, I know at the time you didn't really know. You didn't know much about pancreatic cancer, but um, and and even right now, I don't know a whole lot about pancreatic cancer. But when I hear that term i i immediately go oh that sounds really bad like pancreatic cancer i think is a cancer it's it's not the it's not the uh the old like oh well at least you got the good cancer it's it, de- <laughs> it definitely doesn't fall under that i think it's term. on the uh the 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 bad end of the bad end of the all bad spectrum. It's not on the good yeah. end. That's for sure. So like, it's not. No. So not. H- how do you like when you get that news? Um, what is what is the course of action when someone has pancreatic cancer? What did what can they do for you? Yeah. So a few things because it's not on the good side of the pancreatic <laughs> cancer meter. <laughs> uh, so pancreatic cancer is you know, there's different levels of it. And I have to say, I got really lucky. My proactivity, my tenaciousness allowed me to find it before the cancer spread into my blood. So it was localized. Now, when you say localized, it was spread over five of my organs. I had five of my organs removed and my digestive system completely reconstructed. So that sounds intense. And it is intense because of the nature of where the pancreas is located and how close it is to so many organs, you start to get tumors on the pancreas and then it starts spreading over other organs in the area because there's so much going on in that region of the body. Now, all of a sudden you're infecting other organs. Some people have it infect their blood. Some people have it infect certain organs where you can't have an operation. So in pancreatic cancer, there are two, really, you start with two questions. Are you operable or inoperable? So patients who are operable will have a Whipple surgery, which is what I had. The removal of anywhere from one or two or three or four or five or maybe more of your digestive organs. And then they figure out how to reconstruct you. Now, it's predominantly the same organs that get infected. So they reconstruct their digestive system and just reconnect things in a little bit of a different way, a shorter route, and there you go. But there are some patients who are inoperable. We have to shrink their tumors, so they have to receive chemotherapy or radiation to shrink the area that has been infected before they're even eligible to have an operation. So it's a, it's a, it's not a cut and paste cancer, and there's definitely different stages. And I will say that it's dramatically uh, scarier from one stage to the other. Now that doesn't mean that other cancers are not dramatically scarier from one stage to the other. I'm just not even close to being an expert on any other cancer or cancer in general. I just know my experience, what I Mm. went through and the general knowing of my experience in pancreatic cancer and what other patients have been through. So I was lucky. I found it early enough where I just, this is going to sound ridiculous, where I just had to have only five of my organs removed and my digestive system reconstructed. Lucky me. (laughs) But the truth is, it was lucky me because it could have been a lot worse. It could have been a lot worse. Is is Whipple surgery, am I I conflating this with what Sarah had? Is, is, Is Whipple surgery the one where they take out, like, they take out certain organs and they do like a, they do like a, like a chemo wash? of sorts? Well, that may be true. I know that I had like 
a radiation wash. Like you quickly kind of scan things in case any little crumbles of the cancer or the tumors fell like cells that you wouldn't be able to see. So you get some radiation while you're open. Now, I don't know what a chemo wash is, but I know that when I was like right there, open on the table, mm. there's some radiation that takes place to make sure that while the surgeon is cutting the tumors out and right. removing the tumors, removing what's infected, that how can we guarantee that no little cells ha- are still in there and that can essentially manifest mm. into becoming tumors again? So mm. kind of scan things. And yeah, yeah. When, when make they, sure um, in terms of like uh, your story, like when when you got home and your your parents told you that you had pancreatic cancer and six months to live, at that point, did they know that it was operable still, mm. or was it like did they initially think that it was inoperable, or like like I, I'm curious as to because like saying telling you right away like you have six months to live is obviously hardcore. like an incredibly I mean not just the physical like how scary that is in the fact that you, you can die, but like mentally, I just imagine like the trauma Mm -hmm. that could, could cause, um, did, did like, did their ability to treat you sort of evolve quickly after you found that out or was, was right away? Was it like, Oh, we have to get you straight into surgery. They had no clue. Mm -hmm. So I have to say, and I'm going to answer Jeremy state a little bit on Jeremy's statement earlier when you were talking about the doctors None of the doctors initially, the five doctors did anything wrong. They were all mm. checking an area of my body and they were right. That area of my body was fine. I think what happened that was wrong was that the doctor who I asked for a CAT scan was not willing to give it to me. Now, was he wrong? No, because he's following protocol. And here's the delicate part with doctors. Doctors are great. Surgeons are great. I mean, think about it for one second. A surgeon opens up people, saves their life, cutting them up, sewing them back together. I mean, I would faint at the sight of that. Like it it takes courage to be a doctor and to be a surgeon, but also it requires a particular mindset Mm. to stay focused and to do this. Like the stakes are high. The stakes with my surgeon were high. I have a 17 year old on my table. She has her whole life ahead of her. When I think about my surgeon, I think about, wow, what went through his mind? Maybe none of this went through his mind, but I imagine that maybe that did go through his mind. And it's delicate with doctors because they see things every single day. So over time, over years and decades of being a doctor, chest pain equals acid reflux, chest pain equals acid reflux. It's so hard after 20 years of chest pain equaling acid reflux for that one girl that walks into your office and says, no, I'm sick. No, it's not acid reflux to say, you know what, Christina, you're right. Let's really investigate this. It just goes against just, I think, us humans. We're creatures of pattern. If you think about our our own personal lives, we have our own patterns, just the way doctors do. But we look at doctors as this, sometimes as God figure in society, like, no, you have to get it right or you are right. And we forget that they're humans. Yeah, we look and, at we look at doctors the way <clears throat> like I've always thought we look at doctors the way that you look at your parents when you're five. Yes. You know, it's like you yes. have all the yes. answers. You can't do wrong. You you like you will ensure that everything is going to be okay. Like we, and, and even as adults, we do that with with doctors, which is such a funny thing because 
you know, as, as adults, we look at our parents and we go, no, you're flawed as fuck. I mean, like you guys, the, yeah. you guys had no idea what you were doing. But the hard part yeah. is that it's also very nuanced in the sense that there has to be balance. Like we have to be able to, yeah. to some extent, trust that the years and years of education that the, and, and I'm not saying yeah. like I, Christine, I totally hear what you're saying about advocating for yourself. And, you know, especially one thing that you said is like how many people um, will go for a third opinion, a fourth opinion, a mm-hmm. fifth opinion. You know, we just don't, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. And it, but it's so hard because like on one extent we have to be able to hold them to an expectation of delivering a high standard of care and that their you know their experience their education that all these things are going to to shine through and that they're going to do the right things but we also have to understand that not they're not always going to be right and doctors yeah. also have to have the humility to say and acknowledge when they <laughs> might not be right too. Um, so it, it's, it's hard. an impossible it's, it's, problem to solve. It's really hard. Yeah. To, it, like, sometimes you know? it's hard for me to like yeah. have this conversation because I'm like, yeah, fuck. We, they, they have to be, they have to be better. <laughs> but also I'm like, but also they're really good. You're <laughs> yeah, always going to have, you're always going to have the, 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 the horrible reality of it is that you're always going to have yeah. people like people like Christina that are, that are that after checks and tests and everything that don't reveal anything, there is something there. And that, and if mm-hmm. it doesn't get, if it doesn't, if there is there, if there isn't that advocacy, then it doesn't get taken care of. And yeah. then the result is worse than it, than it ends up being totally for, for yeah. you, Christina. And on the other, and then on the other side, it's that there's all, there's going to be, you know, also millions of instances where that is the right thing to do for the, mm-hmm. for, for the, for the doctor to say, you know, there, yeah. we, can, we haven't found anything and that they and that they end up being right. And that's yeah. where the, the horrible situation lies is that there's going to be both. There's going to be both of those instances millions of times over, and and that's and and there's going to be bad outcomes as a result of, yeah. of both. I, I'm really glad, Christina, that you that you laid that out that way because um, I think I think we're no stranger to hearing folks on the show um, who feel the complete opposite. You know, feel like like the folks that feel really let down by their their physicians and. And sort of take that out on mm-hmm. on on the like the folks in in the world of medicine, um, and and I totally get it. I fully get it. But it's it's mm-hmm. one of those. Every time I hear it, there's always this part of me in my heart where I'm like, mm. I know, but but it's not. That's not how it is. Like that's not because there's instances of negligence, and then there's yes, then there's of instances of being human. Yes, like you said, exactly. like you yeah. said, Christina, yeah. and I think that's yeah. probably the thing that we need to, and and that's a hard, that's probably a sometimes that can be a thin that line, very thin line, yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, yeah. it's a thin line also because it goes into a whole completely other category. And Brian, to answer your question, I think this is where I began to see that I was looking at it a little bit different. We often look at the doctor and think, "Please save me, mm. save me, whatever you think." Okay, you're right. Save me. Instead of turning that around and saying, please save yourself. What's going on, Christina? How mm-hmm. can you be proactive? How, what can you do? And again, 17 in college, I know nothing about medicine, like nothing. I didn't know it. I didn't know what a cancer cell was. I, I, I mean, I had heard of chemo. I heard of cancer, but it was so far away from like my little teenage existence and world that when I heard I had six months to live, And then I finally go back into the house and I look at my mom and dad and I said, well, what do we do now? Mm. What did the doctor say? Because it was the doctor who refused to give me the CAT scan 
that called my parents to give him the bad news. So he's going through his or thing because sure, he's all because yeah. I went to his office two days later and he just started crying. He's oh. like, he was sitting behind his desk. And at this time, I'm like, I'm like, this is the first moment that like my whole, I feel like my whole energy and everything in me just goes, finally, somebody believed you. Okay. Like finally, I don't have to keep fighting. And he comes from around his desk and he starts crying. He goes, I almost killed you. And that right there for me, that was enough. You're right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're right, mister. You did (laughs) almost kill me, but you know what? I see your humanity. I see, I, I actually see how bad you feel. So let's just do something about this now. And he didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to say to me, Brian. He didn't know to say, you're going to have a surgery or you're not going to have a surgery because it was such a rare, it is still such a rare cancer, but it was such a rare cancer when I also had it. It was just so little about it, so little research. And there's a great organization, PanCan, that has been a game changer in pancreatic cancer, allowing more and more research to go into this cancer. And I just started calling surgeons. I just started going and meeting surgeons after I saw a gastroenterologist and I realized the gastroenterologist pretty much said to me, he said, well, there's nothing you can do. The cancer has pretty much spread all over your organs and it's hovering over your heart and it's touching your heart. So because it's touching your heart and we can't get you a heart transplant, you can't have the operation. So I said, well, what does that mean? If I can't have the operation, he goes, well, then, you know, you have six months to live. And he probably didn't say it so jolly as I'm saying it right now. <laughs> he was very stern and direct. And I'm sure like, I don't remember exactly how he said it because my whole world is crumbling. Mm. Like I'm, I'm disassociating for sure. Like leaving my body, coming into my body. And I'm just capturing like words and phrases. And then he, he we're looking at these CAT scan results, like on this big board. And I said, can you show me like where the cancer is and like why I can't have the surgery? He's like, right here, do you see your heart? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, it's touching your heart. And I all of a sudden think about like my eighth grade geometry teacher who's taught me about volume. And I'm like, how do you know it's touching my heart? That's a 2D image. It's 3D inside my body. Here's like no. this like smart ass. Here's like this little smart ass teenager again telling the doctor. Yeah. The doctor's like, oh my god! <laughs> like, but like oh, I only I, ever look at these pictures. I, I, I'm literally, oh, I'm just what a like, little shit. Like, I'm total little shit. But you know what? It was that little shit that saved my life. Yeah, totally. honestly, like yeah. it gave me like full permission. Yeah to just, it was like, Christina, this is it. Do or die chips on the table. Like Mm. you have six months to live. Like, like you, I always tell people that knowing when you're going to expire gives you this freedom that is so delicious. Like you, like when Mm. people say, oh, I don't give a fuck. I'm like, yeah, okay. You don't really understand what that means Mm. until you know time is running out. You're watching six months, five months and three weeks, five months and two weeks, five months. Like you're watching the time run out and you're picking up the phone and you're calling doctors and you're calling surgeons and you're saying, please, 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 somebody give me a different answer until somebody gives you a different answer. And then I finally found an incredible human of a, of a surgeon. 
And I have to tell you, I've had the complete opposite experience with the medical industry. I love them. Mm. I love them. I've had, a, I have, I've had so many good doctors and I've had so many good surgeons and I've had so many incredible nurses and it's been, it's, it's really been beautiful, but I have to tell you, I work really hard to find the good ones. Mm. Yeah. I, it's I, it's, I, it's, that it's no joke. It, I, I work you. really yeah. hard to find the good ones. I'll spend hours researching, looking up doctors. Where did they go to school? Where did they do their residency? Calling people, reading reviews, like looking at their photos, like literally, and I'll interview them. I'll go find like five doctors and they're all the same. And I'll go meet with all five of them and just see who do I like? Mm. Like, I don't leave it in their court ever. Think of your favorite one hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I, I, would, uh, I would love to, if anybody who is either a doctor or a surgeon is, you know, familiar with the ins and outs of, of, uh, surgeons, I think specifically and how they, how they will or will not, uh, operate on somebody and kind of what the, uh, what sort of the checklist might be for that. But I, and, and I, I want to preface this with saying that this might be an unfair characteristic of, of how surgeons do this, but I get the sense anyway, again, speculation, Purely my opinion. I get the sense that there is a that there is a bit of a um, a like when they when a, when there's an an operation that looks like it's gonna more likely than not be a loss if we want to categorize it as that as like a for the surgeon. I mean, yeah, as yeah. A, as like oh, there's this complication that could be there, and it's 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 such a it's such a severe complication that almost like a, it could fuck up my record <laughs> sort of, sort of idea. Yeah, and, yeah. I don't, and, I, and that might be unfair, but I'm curious. I, I get the sense that that could be the case sometimes and that finding somebody who will kind of take on a complicated procedure. I feel like lawyer, be. I feel like lawyers are like that too. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think about my yeah. brother-in-law and I'm like, Talking about cases, I'm going. Ooh, you got a big, you got a big one there, Pat. I don't know if you're going to be able to handle this one. But, but, but I kind of like to be fair, Taylor. Like, and I mean, there. If we remove the emotion from that and just think of it like purely on the sense that, like, like, and don't think of it as a win or a loss, but like, uh, could you potentially do more harm to this person by mm. performing this surgery? Well, she's going to die in six months. So, so is the risk like, again, and we don't know the risk and this specific situation is obviously, um, you know, every situation is unique, but like, what if you perform the surgery and then end up, end up killing them in the process? Like, I know that you're, you're, you're sort of like characterizing that as a loss in, in the terms of this surgery, but also it's a loss of life. And you're killing the person before they could have the chance to live, you know, the next mm. six months. So it's, yeah, I think it's really hard to 
know and i think each situation Ooh. is is unique i uh no brian you're totally wrong i'm totally i'm totally i'm totally right about everything i said and, and I, there's no there's no room for argument i want to uh i, I tell you i know you have a hard out at four so so and we're we're looking at like 20 minutes left here i'm um and i i know i know i know that this is one of those conversations that if we just let it ride it would be uh one of those extra long episodes but so just to move things along um because i think this is really important to kind of kind of dive into Christina you uh, you've got a TED talk that uh, has has touched many many people um it's you know it's surpassed over 8 million views now um and i know that your TED talk is uh it it, it dives into the question of like mortality and and how does your mortality kind of affect the way that you live your life I and mean, which is something that you've kind of been touching on this entire time um at what point did you decide that you wanted to kind of use your use your pain and and the hardships that you've been through as 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 like a muse for your art and your 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 craft uh yeah i did not want to i, I shouldn't say i did not want to i was definitely like on the fence, like maybe, maybe not. It wasn't until I was in Ojai, California. And another really exciting part of the story is that I got in a really bad, horrible car accident. That's another, for, that's for a different episode when I was living in Los Angeles and I had all this physical pain from the car accident. And a girlfriend of mine is like, you know what? I'm going to go all these doctors. It doesn't seem to help you. Why don't you come with me? I'm going to take you up to a, a shaman. I'm going to take you to a healer. At the time, I'm like 22 years old. I come from a very dogmatic Christian country, Greece. Everything's very Greek and very Orthodox. <laughs> and like, every corner you walk to, there's a church. And all day long, people are doing their cross and, you know, blessing each other. And it's beautiful, but it's very much that side. Like the word spirituality or anything other than like Greek Orthodoxy or like Roman Catholicism, I had no clue about. Mm. So not only just moved to America, but like really moved to New York, which is a much more diverse place. And here I am 22 years old in Los Angeles, I get into this car accident. And my girlfriend's like, let me take you to a shaman. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? But you know, I was in pain. I was like, you know what? Sure. Take me to a shaman. Cause I was still scared to get into a car and it's like, let's go to the shaman. And we do this five hour meditation, which at first I had no clue, one, how to do it. Like, what do you do when you meditate? Okay, where do I put my arms? Like, what do I do? And then how do you meditate? Like, what is the protocol? And he was so kind and so sweet to me. He's like, don't worry, just sit there. And then the music starts playing and boom, I am transported. Like five hours went by like that. And I wake up after five hours from this like meditation. I thought, Oh, this is amazing. Oh, oh, like what is going on? This is amazing. Like something activated in me that really resonated with meditation. And at the end of the five hour meditation, we're having a little chat and he's asking me some questions. And I was at the time, I'm just like really shy and I don't like to talk around people that I don't know. And he says, as I'm walking out and I have my hand on the door handle, he says, Christina, like this whisper. And I'm like, so afraid to like, look at him because he doesn't really speak a lot. And I said, yes. And he said, you need to write. 
And I, of course, I dismiss it. I'm like, ah, okay, no worries. And then I turn the door handle and he said, Christina, if you don't write the full truth, it's not going to work. And boom, there's another one of those moments. Mm. Downloads where it's like, oh, okay, I get it. Like you see what he means. Like I saw what he meant. Like I understood what he meant by it's not going to work. And I understood what he meant by you have to tell the full truth, not the partial truth. And I was like, oof, oof, okay. And uh, two months later, I wrote the first draft of my play, my solo show, my autobiographical off Broadway solo show in three days. Whoa. First draft in three days. I mean, I wrote all day, all day, just like nine hours a day. And it just kind of came out of me. And from there, that has evolved into many different drafts and many different workshop productions of the play. And we were about to open March 29th, 2020. <laughs> oh, no. <sighs> what happened? <laughs> brilliant taylor brilliant yeah i don't know like this little thing happened new york shut down and you know but it's fine actually um so many other beautiful creative things have come into it that is going to be even more exciting for me so it's all good but then from there i had a friend say to me you know christina you should do a ted talk i was like oh yeah, actually, and like I had thought of it, but like not for like now. I thought maybe later. And all these things just kind of been would show up in my lap. And then I did another talk called My Scar is Sexy. Mm. And that was one of the first times, you know, I've been a, a speaker. I call it a speaker for hire for like the last decade of my life, where I would work with a lot of different brands and they would hire me and I would show up to their events and I would speak on behalf of the brand. So I was this speaker, but I never spoke about my own stories. Mm. I never shared my own stories. I only reserved those for like writing and plays and theater, but I never would just go out and speak. So when somebody asked me to speak and tell a story at this empowerment conference, and I did, that's where I did my talk, My Scar is Sexy for the first time ever. And then a few days later, someone, when it was online, someone said, oh, you know, we should send it here. To this online media platform. Sure, go for it. And then four days later on 4th of July, it goes viral. And I'm just like, I don't really think about these things, Jeremy. I just kind of, mm. you know what? It shows up. I say, yes, let's do it. Mm. It just the sh shows up. The show, uh, the solo show titled Scar. Um, where, where are you at with that now? Like, what's the, what is the, uh, you, you were going to open right before some bizarre thing happened that's shut New York down. Um, what <laughs> is the show? Is the show still, uh, still like slated to, to start, uh, now that things are kind of, uh, opening back up. It is slated. We don't have a date yet. I'm going back to New York next week and getting back together with my team and just really putting it back together, putting the team back together, putting all the elements back together. And it's been you know, I've been taking my time to see what the temperature is like in New York with the theater. Mm. You know, a lot of it opened, Broadway opened, a lot of Broadway shows opened and they were opening and closing, opening and closing. And you're just kind of feeling out the temperature because there's a lot to be taken into consideration now with a live show. Mm. But in the meantime, we started writing it into a film. So you just, you just stay creative with the story. You just find ways to evolve the story into different types of media. Mm. Tell us a bit about My Scar is Sexy, because I know that um, not only is it a talk, but it's also a blog that you that you run. 
Yeah. Can you give us some insight into into what like what that is and and you know the whole like philosophy behind finding empowerment and like and like finding your rediscovering your love for yourself in mm. in and and like accepting the scars that that we carry my scar is sexy is about ownership yes. it's about the self responsibility in your own self in your own ownership of self and here's the truth there is no human being that goes through this journey called life unscathed mm. everyone is going to have a scar and scars are physical they're spiritual, they're emotional, they're verbal, they're psychological, they're psycho-spiritual, they're a combination of all these things. They're oftentimes a lot, and some people get a heavier dose than others. And the reality is that scars, I saw so clearly in myself how my own scars were preventing me from me becoming my authentic self, from me even having the privilege of discovering who I was and meeting myself. Mm. And it was in a very particular moment where someone, my ex-boyfriend said to me, you have to marry me. Who's going to love you with a 13 inch scar across your body? Oh, that hurt me just now. Oh, it it hurt me. It hurt me a lot. And it took me a long time to understand why he said it. Yeah. If we have to look at moments like this, because I don't think there's anyone in the world that doesn't ever get hurt by somebody else's words. I mean, it's just part of life. Things are, people are going to say things to us either directly, indirectly, it's going to hurt us. We say things to other people that hurt other people. We've all had that moment. And when I look at his experience, all of a sudden his girlfriend tells him, I have six months to live. I'm going to die. Okay. I'm going to have this surgery 30% chance. I'm going to die on the table. So let's say goodbye now forever. Then I come out of the hospital and now I'm like, changing and shifting and starting to think all these like existential questions. And it's like like his whole world was also crumbling. Mm. I'm sure he wanted to control it and protect me and make sure like nothing like this ever happened again. And that was a moment where maybe he said something and, you know, I will never know. Like maybe he didn't mean to say it. And he was like, just being mean. I doubt that. I know him. I knew him very well. It came out of this place of fear, Mm. but what was, most people focus on that, like, oh, what a horrible thing to say. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. It is a horrible thing to say. But here's what's worse. The thought I had in my mind at the time. When he said those words to me, I thought, oh, maybe he's right. My agreement, my Mm. agreement with his statement, that moment where I saw myself agreeing with him. And then my third thought is, Whoa, wait a minute, Christina. Oh, no, 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 no. What do you mean? You believe him? You, 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 you think that's true? And then Christina goes, well, I don't know, maybe. What? What do you mean maybe? Well, maybe it is. No, it's so all of a sudden you see these two sides of you. And I couldn't escape it because of this statement that had been said that was just so powerful and so painful. I could not remove myself out of that pain, but it gave me this beautiful opportunity to see myself which I think is so often difficult to mm. see ourselves. We do so much to avoid that. We control so much. We become so much. We are so much. We do so much. We're very busy. I'm very busy. I'm very busy. Very busy. I don't have time to look at myself. That when you have those moments 
you have a very big responsibility to really investigate why you think that. Mm. And that's when, this is something I talk about in my TED Talk, something that helped me the most was when I became curious enough to ask myself, why? Why did you just have that thought? Yeah, yeah, I know. Okay, that, but why? Why did you have that second thought? Okay, but why? And I kept drilling myself deeper and deeper and deeper. And for like three years, a lot of my friends started to say to me, you know, you used to be fun and talkative all the time and you're not really chatty anymore. I'm like, oh no, I'm chatty. I'm just chatting it's with just myself. All up in here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's all, all up in here. Like yeah. I was like in such a like yeah. healing, so focused on like healing my trauma, healing my scars. And it was only through that process that I started to meet this version of myself. And this is what I talk about in my scar is sexy, the talk, my scar is sexy, that I started to imagine this woman I wanted to be, mm. I was pretending to be, but I definitely was not, but mm. I was really good at pretending to be her, but I knew I wasn't her. So I was mm. like, I was working to become this woman that I had on the pedestal. And it was through that evolution of consistent work year after year after year, psychological work, emotional work, psycho-spiritual work, spiritual work to become her, that I started to see the power of scars. Mm. Our scars, if they are not dealt with, they will deal with us. Our scars want us to become the imprint of the scar. So here's the question. Who do you want to be? Do you want to be the imprint of the scar? Or do you want to meet your authentic self? Mm. And the only way to meet your authentic self is to heal your scar. There's just no way around that. Mm. You have to heal that scar. And only when you can look at that scar, that's why it's my scar is sexy. When you can look at that event. Now, there's some really horrible events that happen to people. And I, by any means, I'm not saying that those events are sexy. Cancer is not sexy. Abuse is not sexy. But who you can become, how you can feel about yourself when that scar no longer has power over you, control over you, Mm. That is so damn sexy. And the, that is a powerful feeling. The metaphor for a scar is, is I, I'm, I'm always very, uh, I'm always very drawn to it because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, uh, that, that metaphor is always drawn in, in my experience of, uh, studying yoga over the last, um, over the last 10 years. And, um, I've talked about this many times on the show, but, um, the, the, the idea that like, scar, you know, a physical scar, and how when scar tissue develops that it is from like a physical perspective it is important to to have that scar worked on physically mm -hmm. so that the tissue doesn't start to start to act like a black hole which draws other tissue towards it and and causes harm elsewhere in the body because that's that tissue is tightening and pulling pulling things towards it and so it's important to work on it and then in and then in yoga philosophy um these things called samskaras are, are often referred to as imprints or scars on the, on the brain. The experiences mm. that we have, every experience leaves an imprint or a, a mark on, on the mind mm -hmm. and that the more uh, intense or maybe traumatic ex of an experience, the deeper that, the deeper that cut is on the mind and the harder it is for, and, and the more, the bigger capacity it has to have a, a, a deeper and longer lasting influence on you. Mm. And that recognizing, becoming aware that that imprint exists is sort of the, I think Brian, you, you always, um, 
said this as the uh, as one of the things that stuck out when you took your yoga teacher training that awareness is the beginning of change that you know without the without that moment that initial moment of awareness change can't begin to occur and that mm. once you make that once you're aware of that imprint then you can start to become aware of the influences that it has on you and the more that you can become sort of the the um the 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 master, the, the master of your destiny. Yeah, yeah that's I was I was gonna say master of your, master <laughs> yeah. of your domain, and then I realized yeah, yeah. that that's a Seinfeld reference, and I was <laughs> trying not not to make a Seinfeld reference. Yeah, um, it's, I, it is. Uh, it's. I mean, that's what like therapy is all about. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Christina, what would you say is the biggest thing that your cancer has taken away from you? Um. My stomach. <laughs> no, <I'm just> kidding. <laughs> uh, some foods, mm. really, some foods that I I can't eat, and other than that, I can't really think of anything else. Well, the the second part of that question is, what would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Everything, life. It's given me life. It's given me life, like life, and because everybody has life, and we all have our own interpretation of life, but. It's like so alive all the time for me. And that may sound like a cliche answer, but it's one of those answers that you can't really explain. You just know to take it back to the knowing and the feeling. Christina, this has been, um, I, I mean, this has just been a real treat. I, again, I said at the very beginning of this, this is one of those conversations that I've been looking forward to for a long time. It, it most certainly hasn't disappointed um, you are, you're a breath of fresh air. It's so nice to speak to you. It's so nice to like, just hear your, your, your philosophy and how that's kind of, um, been molded through the, the hardships that you've been through. And, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to sit and chat with us. Um, I'm please let us know when Scar is set to hit the stage because I know, uh, I think, I think I can speak for all three of us. A trip to New York is something that uh, we've been kind of hoping to do again sometime soon. So we'd love to get down and see the show. Um, how, can, how can people Thank find you. you? How can people keep up with your work and, and where can people, you know, stay up to date with you? Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure to chat with you guys. ChristinaHelena.com is my website and I'm on Instagram at I am Christina Helena. Thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. Thank you guys so yeah. much. This is really fun. It's been really, really fun. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.